This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex head you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. The Five Love Languages is a book written by Gary Chapman that came out just over 30 years ago. While its first-year sales were rather modest, it went on to become a sleeper hit, ultimately selling billions of copies. To this day, it continues to be a bestseller each year, and the whole love language concept has become a major cultural phenomenon. A lot of people seem to like it because it helps them to understand differences in how partners prefer to show and receive love in relationships. However, despite its enormous popularity, there's a surprising lack of scientific backing for the love languages concept. In fact, new research suggests that the key principles and ideas behind the love language idea just don't seem to hold up. So is this still a useful framework for understanding love? Let's talk about it. I am joined today by Dr. Amy Muse, an assistant professor and York Research Chair at York University. She is the director of the Sexual Health and Relationship Lab. Her research focuses on the factors that contribute to the maintenance of sexual desire and relationship quality. She has published 121 articles and book chapters and has been awarded over $2.9 million in research funding. I am also joined by Dr. Emily Impet, a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. Emily is director of the Relationships and Wellbeing Lab, which has received over $3 million in funding to pursue research on how relationships impact people's well-being in their everyday lives. Amy and Emily have been close research collaborators for nearly 14 years, and they have published over 60 papers together on sexuality and relationships. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. It's a new year, and I'm excited to announce a new edition of my textbook, The Psychology of Human Sexuality. This is the third edition of the book, and it's the biggest and best version yet. The Psychology of Human Sexuality is a comprehensive guide to the major theories and perspectives on sexuality and the vast diversity in sexual attitudes and behaviors that exist around the world. It's written from a sex-positive, biopsychosocial perspective, and it offers broad coverage of the latest research on a variety of topics, from sexual orientation, to sexual difficulties and solutions, to sex work and pornography, to attraction and intimate relationships. It's a go-to guide for the science of sex written for college students, but also approachable for anyone who simply wants to expand their sexual knowledge. Check the show notes for links on where to purchase The Psychology of Human Sexuality or find it at major book retailers. Enjoy. If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting sex science. Hi, Amy, and welcome back to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, it's great to be here. And hello to you, Emily. Hi, Justin. Great to be here, too. It's a pleasure to have you both here. I'm very excited to speak with you about this new paper that you've authored on the love languages concept. But before we dive into it, Amy, can you just give us the short primer on what the love languages idea is referring to for people who might not be super familiar with it? 
Sure. So the love languages are this idea developed by Dr. Gary Chapman, who was a pastor. And in this role, he counseled couples on their marital issues. And so through these experiences, he developed the idea that we all have a primary love language or a primary way that we prefer to receive love from our partner. Now, he would say that there are five love languages, physical touch, words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, and acts of service. Now, the key idea that he discusses in a book he wrote on the love languages, which was first published in 1992, is that if our partner can learn to speak our love language or show us love in the way that we prefer, then this is the key to lasting love and relationship happiness. Thanks for that concise summary. And I mean, intuitively, it sounds like it makes a lot of sense, right? You just need a partner who speaks your language. And I think that's why so many people have probably been drawn to this idea. So Emily, can you give us a brief sense of just how popular the love languages idea has become? I mean, what kind of impact has this had on the public and on the media? Sure, Justin, I'd love to. So while the book has, I think, modest origins and is based on, as Amy said, Chapman's experiences as a pastor, counseling distressed couples, I think today the love languages have really become a cultural obsession. So social media sites like TikTok have daily content on love languages. The hashtag love languages has more than 500 million views. On popular dating shows like The Bachelor, contestants reveal their love language to potential suitors to gauge their compatibility. There's an online dating site called Bumble where people can display their love language on their profile for potential partners to see even before they go on a first date. Chapman himself has patented an app called Love Nudge, which lets people set goals to consistently speak their partner's love language and make requests of their partner to speak their own. The New York Times has published nearly a dozen articles on love languages with titles such as How the Love Languages Became a Cultural Phenomenon and My Husband and I Don't Speak the Same Love Language. Um, The book itself has sold over 20 million copies. It's been translated into 50 languages and more than 30 million people have taken Chapman's online quiz to determine their own love language. So it's wildly popular, but I will also say that many people are also critical. And my favorite is Dr. Rachel Vanderbilt, who has produced something like 27, I'll say awesome and hilarious TikTok videos criticizing the love languages. (laughs) So it's been pretty popular, right? It has its detractors, like every idea that's out there does, but it's had this seismic impact. Now, I must admit, I must have been living under a rock because I only found out about the love languages circa 2015, 2016. And what first brought it to my attention was this assignment that I had given in one of my graduate seminars on relationships, where I asked students to review a self-help book of their choosing and to evaluate it in light of what the science of relationships has to say. And one of my students chose the original love languages book. And I was shocked to learn just how popular this book was and that it was developed by a pastor based on his experience counseling couples in the church and that it didn't really have any data or research behind it. But since then, it's become this topic of scholarly research. And as you report in your new paper, it doesn't seem to hold a lot of water. So let's dive into some of the issues with the love languages. So Amy, one of the claims made by Gary Chapman, is that everyone has a primary love language, and you find that that doesn't seem to be the case. So tell us why. 
Yeah. So he does make this claim that everybody should have this primary or preferred love language. And as Emily mentioned, he has this online quiz that people can take where they can find out what their love language is. But one of the issues with this quiz is that it forces people to pit the love languages against one another. So for example, people need to choose whether they find like holding hands or receiving gifts more meaningful. So it's a series of forced choice questions. But when researchers have looked at this and when they've asked about the love languages independently, like they've allowed people to rate the value of the expression of each love language, so they're not forced to choose between the options, but they can indicate how much they value each expression, people tend to rate them all highly. So there doesn't seem to be good evidence that people even have a primary love language in real life when people don't actually have to make these kinds of trade-offs they see all of these ways of expressing and receiving love as valuable and important. You know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about just the general problem in a lot of social psychological research where we give people these forced choice questions. So I'm thinking, for example, about how we study infidelity and attitudes toward it. And in a lot of studies, people are asked, are you more upset by emotional infidelity or sexual infidelity, right? So would it bother you more if your partner developed an emotional connection to someone else, or would it bother you more if your partner slept with someone else? And putting that as a forced choice is kind of problematic because for a lot of people, having sexual interactions with somebody else implies that you're going to have an emotional connection with them, right? So people when they have to make these forced choices, we don't necessarily know what their thought process is, right? So there's kind of just the broader issue of maybe that's not the best way to assess people's sexual and romantic attitudes is by pitting these things against one another, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And in the infidelity research you talk about, right, when people are allowed to rate those types of infidelity separately, most people rate both of them as very distressing. And I think we're seeing that same thing here. It also, the items don't give you any context, right? So maybe sometimes, you know, holding hands or physical affection would be something that I would desire. You know, maybe if I had an emotionally difficult day or, you know, we were out for a special dinner, I might want, you know, some of that affection. But if I'm going through a very stressful period at work, maybe I don't want that affection. Maybe I'd prefer my partner to like take on extra tasks or do other things to support me, right? So it doesn't allow for that context, right? You're just sort of pitting these two general things against each other. Absolutely. Now, another issue that you identify is that it's widely claimed that there are just five possible love languages. But when you look at studies that have tried to test this claim, Some of them suggest that there might be fewer. Some suggest that there might be more. So, Emily, what's the problem with this claim that there are only five languages people can speak when it comes to love? Yeah, Justin. So another claim that Chapman makes without any supporting evidence, in addition to the claim that we have a primary or a preferred language that Amy talked about, is that there are five and only five key love languages. But what we found when we reviewed the existing research on the love languages, and we found 10 studies in total that directly focused on the love languages, is that when people are not forced to make a trade-off between different love languages, like they have to do when they take Chapman's quiz, they rate all five love languages very highly. And studies have found high positive correlations among people's ratings of all five of the love languages. On top of this, Chapman really developed the love languages based on his experiences counseling distressed couples. 
But a more comprehensive understanding of how people communicate love would really require a different kind of approach. And in fact, actual empirical science on relationships has used such an approach in which people are asked what they do to maintain satisfying relationships. And this work identified seven distinct behaviors, some which overlap with Chapman's and others which are not captured in his love languages, such as integrating a partner into your broader social network and developing effective strategies to manage conflict. And so I think it's quite possible that Chapman's oversight in recognizing other ways of expressing love outside of his five stems from the fact that he relied on a sample of couples who are all married, religious, mixed gender, and likely share traditional values. And so his love languages, for example, don't include anything about providing support for a partner's autonomy or their personal goals outside of the relationship. And we know from relationship science that these things are associated with increased relationship satisfaction and might be more meaningful to couples with, for example, more egalitarian values. And just to kind of quickly bring it back to the media, a key trend that we noticed in TikTok videos is people claiming to have uncovered a sixth love language. So clearly people feel like something is missing and that it's limiting the focus on just the five. Yeah, and I think the fact that the data aren't necessarily supporting the original claims probably stems from the fact that the five love languages, the way they were identified, didn't start with science and research to begin with. I mean, ideally, if you were going to try and come up with what are the languages of love, you would get a broad, really diverse sample, and you would ask people to list out all the ways that their partner shows love to them or how it is that they want their partner to show love. And then you would do what's called a factor analysis, which is a complicated statistical technique to try and see what the common themes are, what clusters together. And you do this in a data-driven way to figure out what are the languages of love. So there are scientific ways you could go about this that might yield results that'd be more reliable, but you know, just basing this on a small sample that wasn't representative and just pulling out the themes that you've observed only in your own counseling practice, it might not necessarily apply to everyone more broadly. Yeah, you mentioned factor analysis. So some of the studies that we reviewed did indeed use factor analysis. And so some of the studies did claim to find support for the fact that the five love languages are sort of distinct constructs. But the results are inconsistent across these studies and probably more problematically, given the fact that we know that people tend to endorse all five, many of these studies used inappropriate statistical methods that didn't take into account the fact that the five love languages are actually very highly correlated. Yeah, and that's a problem whenever you're trying to do these kinds of statistical analyses. If everything is highly correlated with everything else, it makes it hard to find distinct patterns, right? So a third issue is that people who are proponents of the love languages idea argue that partners who speak each other's love language are bound to be happier in their relationships. I mean, like that's the crux of what this is. You know, if my partner speaks the language that I want them to speak, that's the whole point of this. But is there any evidence that that's actually the case? So in reviewing the literature out there, what did you find, Amy? Well, there are two ways, really, that researchers have looked at this or that you could think about this question. So the first is to test whether partners who have the same primary love language, again, we know that that's a bit problematic because people don't have a primary necessarily, but in terms of their research, if they have the same primary love language, they should be happier than couples who don't share the same love language. So Chapman's idea is that people 
often express love in the way that they prefer to receive it. So if partners do have the same love language, then they should each be expressing love in the other's preferred way. But then Chapman also claims that even partners who don't share the same love language can find lasting love by learning to express love in the way that the other one finds the most meaningful. So the second way to think about this is whether couples are more satisfied when partners express love to the other in their preferred way, regardless of what their own love language is. But in our review, we didn't find support for either of these claims. So the newest research with the best methods shows that people report higher satisfaction when their partner expresses love in any of the five love language. There's no evidence that partners with the same love language or those who try to communicate in each other's preferred language are more satisfied than those who who have a mismatch. So again, it seems that, you know, for most people, all of these expressions of love are meaningful and all of these expressions of love tend to be associated with higher relationship satisfaction. I would suspect that, you know, part of the reason we're not necessarily seeing the benefits of matching is because people are, as you said, multilingual when it comes to love, but they also often want their partner to speak a different language at different points in time, right? So this might be very context dependent. And this reminds me of a concept I used to teach about in my health psychology courses when we would talk about social support. And it was this idea of what we called optimal matching, which basically means that social support is really only perceived as supportive when the kind of support that's offered is the kind of support that you wanted, right? So... As an example that I would often give my students, you know, let's say you are driving to an appointment or work or something and your car breaks down or runs out of gas and you call your partner. And let's say your partner says, oh, I'm really sorry, that must be really stressful for you and they're offering emotional support. Or maybe they drive out to meet you and they give you a big hug and then they drive away, right? They're giving you support, but that's not the kind of support you need, right? You need your partner to provide tangible support in that case and to bring you gas or drive you or call a tow truck or something, right? So it's all about not just what is the language of love or the kind of support that you're providing, but what is it that I need in that moment? And we're dynamic beings who need different things at different points in time. So I don't know, does that sound like a kind of fair assessment of what might be happening here? Yeah, I think so. It just, I mean, when you think about what the love languages are, it's hard to imagine that, you know, many of these things aren't important in most relationships. I mean, it's really about providing that sort of like verbal support to a partner, showing affection, spending time together, doing things to help each other, like giving each other signs of appreciation. So it's hard to imagine that like only one of those things could really be a defining feature of the relationship. You know, a lot of those things are or what are features that make up our close relationships, right? That we need all of these things. And like you said, um, we may need more of them in certain moments. I mean, getting a present every day doesn't sound all bad. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think I would want some other kinds of expressions of love just beyond giving gifts, right? So, yeah, I think we're all complex, multidimensional beings here. Yeah, gifts is actually an interesting one, Justin, because when they do the forced choice, in any of the studies that have been done, like zero to four percent of people end up having gifts as their primary love languages, according to Chapman's scale. But when you just allow people to rate independently, more than 50% score the highest on gifts, right? So 
when they're sort of forced, like people don't want to say that gifts are more important than these other like support or affection. But when you're just asked to rate, I think gifts often do make people feel special. So that's also getting lost in this sort of forced choice paradigm. Well, and I wonder too, if there might also be some self-presentational issues here, right? So if you say that you want gifts or that that's the way that your partner expresses affection, like maybe people don't want to come out and say that because maybe it makes them sound materialistic or something like that. So, you know, anytime we do these studies on sexuality and relationships, we always have to be mindful of the fact that sometimes people aren't necessarily telling us the truth because they're concerned about how they might look or what the implications are there. Yeah, the comedian Taylor Tomlinson, I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she has this great bit about the love languages. And one of the pieces that she talks about is like asking someone new their love languages. And if you say, if they say gifts, you just kind of turn and walk away because that like says something very bad about them. Um, so yeah, she's she's got some really good bits. Like Rachel Vanderbilt, she's another person that uh, has some great insights and funny insights into the love languages. You know, it would make for a fascinating study in and of itself. I think, Emily, you mentioned that on Bumble, people can put their love language in their profile. I think it'd be really interesting to, you know, do an analysis of what languages people are putting out there and then what their proportion of matches are based on them. So are certain people drawn to some love languages more than others? It would be an interesting test of this idea. Yeah. I mean, we'd also have to, though, agree with the assumption that love is a language and that people have a preferred language and that there are five love languages, which I feel like are assumptions that we have now kind of based on our review of the literature empirically debunked. We could partner with some of these dating apps if they would be willing to share their data with us. Okay, so in your paper, you argue that perhaps we need a new metaphor for thinking about love. And you talk about love as being akin to needing a nutritionally balanced diet. So Emily, can you break this down for us and tell us what is the advantage of thinking about love through this nutritional lens? Sure, Justin, I'd love to talk about this since this was, I think, the funnest part about writing the review paper because we didn't just want to kind of take something away or tell people that the love languages are empirically debunked, but we really wanted to replace the love languages with something else since we feel like people are hungry for information about how to improve their relationships. And we think that one of the reasons why the love languages are so popular is because it relies on an intuitive metaphor. So you just need to learn to speak your partner's love language. And so this metaphor, I think, resonates with people and conveys an easily digestible message free of scientific jargon, something that us academics are often not very good at. And so as relationship scientists, we are really trying to bridge the gap between popular late theories about relationships that are running rampant in society and on the internet with what we know from the actual science of relationships. So in our paper, we suggest that love is not a language we need to learn to speak but it's more like the need to keep a nutritionally balanced diet. So Chapman's language metaphor implies that people can only feel love when their partner speaks their love language, but the healthy diet metaphor suggests that people need multiple essential nutrients to maintain happy relationships. So while people can certainly stay alive if they only consume some ingredients, so for example, a diet with mostly carbs, we ultimately need all five key nutritional ingredients, so carbs, protein, fat, vitamins, and minerals, 
to be in the best state of health. Similarly, I think the best relationships will be ones in which partners spend quality time together, express appreciation, show affection, help and support each other, make each other feel special, which I think is the intention behind gifts, among other behaviors like support for personal goals that are not captured in Chapman's five love languages. So I think the bottom line is that we really need to rely on our romantic partners for many things. So emotional support, physical intimacy, and companionship. And as we've talked about, these needs can change as couples find themselves in different situations and stages of life. Something that Chapman's metaphor of people being an X type of person doesn't really recognize. So I think thinking of love as a nutritionally balanced diet kind of keeps all expressions of love on the menu, so to speak, and it really invites partners to share what they need at a given point in time. You know, as you were speaking about that, I couldn't help but kind of think of the food pyramid, but through a love lens, right? So if you sort of took, instead of the five food groups or whatever, how many however many groups there are, uh, you took instead different expressions of love. I think you could create sort of a pyramid of, you know, what the needs are. And I think it would be interesting to actually have people sort of fill out what their own pyramid is, because I think for some people, some of those needs, they're going to need more of one type than another. So you might put the bigger ones at the bottom and the you know sort of smaller ones at the top. But it's also going to be dynamic, change across relationships, change across time. So it's a good way of reconceptualizing and thinking about this as opposed to that forced choice paradigm that we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, the food pyramid idea, because it actually in some ways kind of parallels the results that you get if you take Chapman's online love quiz. So what it does is it gives you a sort of percentage for each one. So in some ways, based on your results on that quiz, again, using the forced choice measure, which we know is problematic, people could sort of build their own pyramid from taking that quiz. So love pyramids. (laughs) I think that would be a fun paper and would be a fun online quiz for people to do. Now, I have another question on the love languages, right? So despite the fact that there might not be a strong or even a weak scientific basis for the idea, there are a lot of people who still love it and who feel as though it has been very helpful to them in their own relationships. So Amy, what would you say to folks whose response to all of this might be, so what? Because they still found value in the concept. So is it okay to still like the love languages idea, even if it doesn't have scientific backing to it? Yeah, this is such a great question. It's one that we've thought a lot about, right? Okay, like, so there's no empirical support for it, but like if people find value in it, is it really a problem? I mean, it's certainly not our position that people should not try to understand their partner's needs. Of course, there's a wealth of research and relationship science showing the value of being responsive to a partner, right? Trying to learn what makes them feel valued, cared for, and understood. This is, you know, one of the organizing principles of relationship science. But we actually think that the love languages might limit this responsiveness. And we've been sort of talking about these ideas here. You know, we've already mentioned how we get a lot of needs met in our relationships. Most people get a lot of things from their partner, right? That emotional support we've been talking about, physical intimacy, companionship, And these needs are going to change based on the situation as well as over time and relationships. It might be different as, you know, if couples have children, as they age through different stages of life. 
And so if we think that our partner prefers to receive love in this one specific way, it might limit our ability to really be responsive to these needs as they change and, you know, to engage in that responsiveness that we've been talking about, right, based on what the situation requires. So, you know, maybe after like losing a promotion, you really do just want your partner to listen and give you those words of affirmation. Maybe when you're out for a date night, you do want that affection. It makes you feel special. Maybe when you're stressed, you want your partner to take on those extra household tasks, right? But if, you know, if if your partner thinks that you really like to receive love in only one of those ways, it might limit that expression across situations. So I think it actually might limit partners from having those discussions about, you know, their changing needs and interests in the moment. Uh, So that might be a risk. So I would much prefer that we had messages in relationships, you know, out there in the world for people interested in having better relationships about really trying to have these conversations and understanding these needs over time and knowing that, you know, relationships are going to ebb and flow in some ways and challenges are going to be presented than having partners, you know, pair up based on their love language. Yeah. So it sounds like the key is learning how to be a responsive partner. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think just this idea that we're going to have this stable need for an expression of love just has no empirical support. And we know that in relationships, you're going to be there to meet many needs of your partner. And, you know, I would rather people develop skills in thinking and understanding that, you know, rather than just trying to identify their own and their partner's love language, like based on this quiz. Yeah. Did you have something you wanted to add to that, Emily? I do. Yeah. Because like Amy said, we've thought about this a lot. And so I will say that even though I think that there are some risks to thinking about love as a language, like leading people to have a fixed view of themselves or their partner, or sometimes people could use their own love language label to coerce a partner into doing things. Despite these risks, I actually do see some value in the book. So Chapman talks a lot about the importance of openly communicating with a partner, attending to a partner's needs and being responsive, showing affection in a way that's really tailored to a partner's needs. He also provides some really useful practical examples of things that people can do in their everyday lives, like setting goals to give their partner a compliment every day for a month or asking their partner for a list of five activities that they would enjoy doing with you. So I think that couples can use the book as a springboard to talk about things in their relationship, and it can be helpful, but just not for the reasons that Chapman thinks. So I basically think it's kind of possible for two things to be true at once. So one, the three core assumptions of the love languages are wrong and not empirically supported. And two, people could still read the book and find it to be somewhat helpful. Yeah. (laughs) And I agree with that assessment, but it's not necessarily the answer that everyone wants to hear because, um, you know, when you've got these competing things, like it can be both valuable and not true at the same time, right? It's a tension that's kind of hard for some people to hold, but it makes sense to me. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Amy and Emily. Can you please let my listeners know where they can go to learn more about you and your research? You can follow my lab on Instagram. It's Share Lab Research, and you can follow me on Twitter or X now, unfortunately, um, at Amy Muse. And you can follow my lab on emilyimpet.com. Great. And I'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Justin. It's been great. Thanks for having us. 
Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Lee Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lee Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 